Today's conversation is with Dr. Muhammad Minhaj Siddiqui, a fellowship-trained specialist in urologic oncology and robotic surgery at the University of Maryland Medical Center. Minhaj specializes in a surgical management of urologic cancers such as prostate, bladder, kidney, and testicular cancer. He has also performed extensive research on the metabolism of prostate cancer and associated diets that are connected to it and on active surveillance. Our conversation today was on who's the right candidate for active surveillance after diagn- after a prostate cancer diagnosis with Gleason 7 specifically, right? Gleason 7 as a Gleason grade 2. Who's the right candidate for active surveillance? Is everyone on the same page? Are all urologic oncologists willing to recommend active surveillance in patients with Gleason 7? And what's his personal methodology? How does he determine what type of Gleason 7, Gleason grade 2 prostate cancer can be on active surveillance? We also spoke about the metabolism of prostate cancer and its associated diets. And we spoke about a paper that he wrote about in 2014 that I still get... (laughs) They still get a lot of questions asked about, which is the association between vasectomies and lethal prostate cancer. My conversation with Dr. Muhammad Minhaj Siddiqui. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention, my goal to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. Today we have Dr. Minha Siddiqui. I'm, ho- I'm hoping I'm not butchering your name, Minha, here. I, I try. <laughs> Minha. What, what, Minhaj. Minhaj. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. I wouldn't be the first to say Minha. No. <laughs> Thank goodness. I've, I've heard it all. That was pretty recognizable. I'm happy. <laughs> um, so, Minhaj. Um, we met at the AUA recently and it was like, I don't know, I, I hate to, it was like love at first sight a little bit. Why? Because like I've read some of your work uh, or much of your work. I've seen you in panels. I was like, yeah, this guy gets it. And anybody, of course, I'm biased. Anybody who thinks diet, even remotely and prostate cancer, I'm like, oh, perfect. This is my guy. I can't wait. So I met you. I was like, oh, that's great. And um, we met at a lunch and um, it was great. And then you said, yeah, we, we connected right away. And and here you are. You're on the pod. So thank you so much for um, for being on. I know I know you have a a busy uh, you know clinical life, uh, research, and family. So thank you for being on. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. I mean, I you know similarly, Dr. Gio, like you're doing just such amazing work, and um, uh, you know it was it it it's been a you know I I I was already familiar. I've I've seen you talk, and mm. I think like the things you you touch base on are sorely needed in our mm-hmm. field and you being such an advocate you know like an implementer of of putting together research and like making it understandable for mm-hmm. for the broad audience both clinicians and patients like that that is a huge area mm-hmm. um and um and we met at a lunch with um howard walensky that's right you're you know who um i think bridges uh you know, is also a communicator of sorts. I mean, he's right. a journalist, and uh, I think I've collaborated with them, and and you've worked with them in different ways. I'm assuming, and and so yeah, 
it's fortuitous that 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 brought us together. And I I'm grateful for that. I am. I had no idea. Uh, Howard didn't mention who was going to be there, and I thought it was actually. I thought it was just going to be you know him and I, and then here you were there. I'm like, ah, oh, this is great. This is great. So when I looked at your bio, um, University of Maryland, uh, it starts with your medical school education, which started at Harvard. Then I dug a little deeper, and it turns out you have a bachelor's degree in bioengineering, I think, from MIT. Now, these are top schools. That cannot be ignored. I know you guys are super humble. Everybody from like top schools don't even want to say it these days. And but that's impressive. And here's why I think that's impressive. I know a few MIT guys. I don't know that many, but maybe a handful or so. And I joke with them with the fact that, you know, that they're all on a spectrum in one way or another. Right? And always, we always discuss about emotional intelligence. Do you even have? Do you even know what that is? Now, the reason why I thought that was interesting when I with you is because I would have never guessed that. Not, of course, not nothing to do with your intelligence, but to do with the fact that I would never have guessed that you graduated from MIT because I have the stereotype in my head that everyone who graduates from MIT is on the spectrum in one way or another, having zero emotional intelligence. How do you do that? And or am I, did I get it wrong? Like, do you, I know you have three kids. We were talking about you're involved. Father's Day is coming. Clearly to me, you are involved and you have EQ rather than just IQ. Am I getting that right? And how do you do that? <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm truly grateful for the education I've like been able to undergo and i think that going to mit and then you know harvard and the harvard program i actually was involved with was is this one called health science and technology hst which is a joint mit and harvard venture for people interested in academia mm-hmm. you know i mean i i i i um have always been good at math and science mm-hmm. just came natural to me i i would i would take you know, a advanced engineering differential equations course mm-hmm. 10 times over before I would do a literature course, <laughs> uh, you know, right. and it's just, it's just like everyone has different skills and different things that click with their, their brains. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and to me, the, the, the STEM kind of topics were always good. And then when I was in there, I was a chemical, so, you know, biomedical engineering 1997 mm-hmm. was when I was an undergrad, uh, biomedical engineering was still not considered a pure engineering, so mm. it was not allowed to have its own major. Mm. They were like that. This was the fight that they were fighting. Mm. It was only a minor, and so I was a chemical engineer. Um, but with biomedical engineering, there was a couple of exposures I got during my time doing that type of um, work. Uh, I, I got involved with this lab called Langer mm-hmm. Lab. Um, Bob Langer, who's an amazing individual, he's a tissue engineering and stem cell kind of guru oh and you know he's had like 20 companies spin out from his lab it's one of the largest labs at mit and mm. he was growing uh organs in the, in the lab um and that's what kind of bridged the medicine connectedness and gap with the engineering and and put me on this road that uh of of like um academic academic medicine where i'm interested in kind of helping people mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, and and you learn these you learn these skills as you kind of you know traverse your your career. Uh, Did you and, have to learn how to connect with people? For some people, that's natural. For example, I I love that's always been a natural thing for me, right? So, uh, you know, just connecting with people, figuring that process. I've been very curious about that. Did you have to learn that? Were you uh, did you have a difficult time connecting with people because you're so into your, you know, what statistics and your work and in math and science? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think, um, I think yes and no in different contexts. I, I am, uh, uh, you know. I, I'm an intro, you know, you do the, you do the what, what's it, MIGS, Briar MIGS or whatever it's called, yeah, like the INTJ, right? That's, I'm like the INTJ or something yeah. like that. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm an introvert. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I think like, uh, I think those things, like they, they're, they're in, I mean, I remember doing those types of analyses on myself uh -huh. and like, they're interesting because like, they don't, they don't say that this is the life you have to live you you can't communicate with people but they tell you like what comes naturally to you mm -hmm. and what doesn't come mm -hmm. naturally to you um and then that helps you kind of focus on like what you should be more uh objective about like i um i'm married to an extrovert it's oh, very that's... clear <laughs> it's very clear that i'm the introvert and she's the extrovert i think and, she's uh, helped maybe she's helped you yeah, come out no I, I think i think like uh i i, I did learn actually in undergrad that there is this kind of you know we you don't generalize anything but like there is a general difference between like mit type personalities and like other like i 100%. i actually ran this conference yeah. during undergrad that was a joint harvard and mit conference mm. and i i felt that the mit crowd team if you will of students was coming with all these great ideas and like just like really deep geeky knowledge on the topic matters yeah. okay more so than i felt like on the harvard side and I, since i went to both i feel like i can badmouth them it's okay, <laughs> but, but but i felt like when we had joined meetings yeah. you know who knew how to like kind of just communicate better was uh the harvard side yeah. and it was like such an yeah. interesting yeah. kind of um match and i think early on i saw that like ah. you know like like you have to be both knowledgeable on topic matter, but also a communicator. And I think, I think like I, I have tried to incorporate that. Fantastic. Uh, and and it's unbelievable that you got that early on, that you were able to pay attention to that. Right. Cause I, again, I see adults that are from these schools and I'm like, they still haven't, right. They still, they're still very comfortable in their, in the way of being and that, that they're unwilling to step out of the, uh, their comfort zone and be yeah. more of an Certainly extrovert. If you want to survive in medicine, you know, I mean, you, you, you need both. You, you know, the, it is a, it is a person, you know, patient facing yeah. world, even if you're a surgeon. Absolutely. Still, and, and so, yeah. It, it well, that's is, fantastic it, it to know. I, I was really curious, man. I, I look MIT was like, he doesn't come across that way, you know, and yeah. I was like, I'm going to have to ask him. So, and then I think your <laughs> wife has a lot to do with it, by the way, that's just my opinion. <laughs> I'm sure she does. She, she she would say so too, <laughs> and I would I would say so too. To be honest. Yeah. So, all right. So let's dive in into um, several elements of prostate cancer. So, um, we have a, a episode on active surveillance with um, Dr. Deidre Bragodia. Uh, always trying to get the names right. Um, mm -hmm. Who I know you know. Um, so we we had a general overview of that. Like who's the right candidate and so forth. We didn't dive in 
to this sector of intermediate risk men with prostate cancer, right? And of course, lo and behold, you have a paper on it uh, written in 2019, I believe, but 2022, actually, not that long ago. And you have a review paper on active surveillance in favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, questions and controversies. Let's define what intermediate risk means, first of all. So we know it's not Gleason 6, that's low risk. Um, mm-hmm. What is intermediate risk? And what is your methodology of determining, yep, this is a what, what, you, what we would call low favorable or uh, 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 high favorable intermediate risk, or you could use the right terminology if I'm butchering it as well. Absolutely. So let's yeah. get right into that. What is intermediate risk? That's great. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the classic definitions are, so, you know, whenever you're diagnosed with with cancer, the first thing you get is a grade in the stage. The grade kind of gives you an insight into like how the cancer cells look Mm -hmm. and what they're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. Um, The stage tells you what they are actually doing. And so the grade, you know, we have this traditional scoring system, the Gleason score system, Mm -hmm. and the Gleason score system starts at six, as we discussed, and goes up to 10. Um, and it gets a little, it gets a little like kind of, uh, detailed. And so seven is intermediate risk. Now within intermediate risk, there is a favorable intermediate risk and an unfavorable intermediate Mm -hmm. risk. And so it turns out that the sevens have, have two layers to them. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're broken up into components. And so there's a three plus four component and a four plus three component. Mm And as you would kind of could guess, the three plus four is the favorable intermediate and the four plus three, you know, the higher number being first is the unfavorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a newer system out there. Uh, it's called the grade group system. Yeah. I, I actually, when I tell patients about these diagnoses, I tell them about the Gleason score because it's historically everywhere. And if you Google it, you're probably going to see a Gleason score. Right. But the grade group system is a lot easier to understand. Mm. You know, it starts at one and goes to five. So none of this starting at six business, which I think throws everyone That's off right. because, you know, you, six is a low risk cancer, but six out of 10 sounds kind of concerning. And so I think the mindset is better when you start at one, go to five, right? One is low risk. Two is favorable intermediate risk. Three is unfavorable intermediate risk. That's right. And so right. depending on which system you use, it's either a seven or it's a two or a three on the grade group system. Both are saying the same thing. And within that system, grade group system, they are using the Gleason score, but it just makes the numbers just easier and easier conversation with patients. Uh, 100%, GG1, yeah. GG2, GG3, et cetera. Is the Gleason yeah. score the end-all be-all? Or is that the first thing? Like, so yeah. I've heard that in numerous conferences from, you know, the some of our uh, senior uh, members of our profession. And it's like, yep, Gleason score is the ultimate, you know. And what do you, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think there's always nuance, but I think that the 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 grade of the cancer does drive the majority of the decision making. Having said that, um, you know, you take into account PSA, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly I think PSAs of less than ten are considered low risk. Ten to twenty is intermediate risk. Twenty and higher is high risk. Okay, you can take into consideration MRI findings. The MRI findings in particular give you stage. So we mentioned grade is how a cancer looks under a microscope. It looks like what it's capable of doing. It doesn't necessarily tell you how, what it is actually doing, whereas the stage is what it's actually doing. And so is the prostate cancer contained within the walls, the capsule of the prostate? Mm-hmm. Has it has it broken through into, you know, through the, the capsule itself or into like the surrounding structures such as the mm-hmm. vesicle? Has it, it does it look like it might be in the lymph nodes? Certainly if it's like, you know, in the bone or something, that's a whole different beast as well. 
And so these, you know, grade and stage are both important. You want something that's organ confined uh, to keep it as intermediate risk. Once it starts breaking out of the prostate, it, it, even if the grade group or the Gleason score is um, uh, a set, like uh, a grade group two or three, um, then, um, it, you know, if it's breaking through the prostate, it becomes high risk. Or if the PSA is super high, it becomes sure. high risk. And so these, these are the things that you kind of have to finagle a little bit. Um, there's never a kind of a black and white answer. You're always kind of integrating information to, to, to risk stratify patients. Yeah. So if, if, even if it's a Gleason seven, three plus four, but there's evidence that it's outside the prostate, then that's not low favorable anymore. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it turns out that mo many, most perhaps Gleason sevens, three plus four, uh, three plus four are still within the capsule. If it's a true Gleason seven, three plus four, which leads exactly. me to my next question. How do we know that? So if we're, yeah. if we're taking a hundred um, cores of a prostate, no one does that. So I don't want the listener to freak out, but I, I'm just giving an example. If you take a hundred cores of a prostate, depending on the size of the prostate, you're probably taking one, 2% of the whole prostate. I mean, there's some big prostates out there. So how do we know that we have it all? What's the best methodology of saying, yep, this is a true Gleason 7, 3 plus 4? Yeah, I mean, that's that, you know, you're hitting on fundamental questions in our field. And so the only way you know for sure, with no no loss of Remove the prostate. It's by removing the entire <laughs> prostate, right? right? And anything short of that, you're, you're sampling. So we can't we can remove and, the prostate test and then put it back yeah. in. And put we it back do in, that, right? I just, right? Want to, so, just want to make sure. And so his, his, historically, this was a big problem, and it's still a problem, but but fortunately not as bad as it was. And so before, you would do typically 12 evenly spaced kind of grid-like samples, kind of like a battleship, mm -hmm. a three-by-four grid. That's a great analogy. You know? I've never thought yeah. I have an image yeah. in my head. That's great. Yeah, like a battleship. Yeah, right. so you do... Exactly. So you get the three by four sampling and you hit what you hit and you miss what you miss. And and you hope that you hit the areas that are are reflective of the entire prostate. It turns out when you did it that way, that somewhere between 30, a third to 50 percent, a half of the time when you did the prostatectomy, you would find actually more aggressive cancer in the prostate. Mm -hmm. And so so so. So the the random sampling or the template sampling method is is inherently somewhat inaccurate. Okay, and so this has kind of then led to the era of MRI integration, you mm -hmm. know, and which is now kind of ten years in, yeah. and is pretty pervasive. Uh, so it's not that new right. anymore. Uh, and the MRI, what it does is it gives you a map. Right. It like if we're using the battleship analogy, it lets you see where all the ships mm -hmm. are and it lets you lets you put your 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 shots, you know, where they matter. And so now we we can do the target biopsies and there's like technical limitations and stuff. And so it's not 100 percent, mm -hmm. but the up, the rate of upgrading at after prostatectomy from biopsy went from about 50 percent to maybe 10 percent. So we can. Yeah. So we can feel a lot more confident now. Uh, that what you're sampling is actually probably what you have. Um, and then there's still caveats to all of that, but that that is in general where, where things have come. Yeah, that's a big, that's a huge improvement, right? So you can, you can and, and it's an MRI targeted 
also known fusion biopsy where they blend in the MRI with the ultrasound. And I guess the, the images pop up, the, the areas of interest just kind of pop up and you can target right that area. You still take a couple That's- other samples just in case. Is that what you do still? So you go, yeah. 100% because MRI MRI does not capture 100% of right. cancer. There are, there are variants of prostate cancer that don't show up well yeah. in MRI. So you have to do the random sampling to make sure you're not missing right. it. So there is a 10%, so so there's only a 10% chance of there being an upgrade of their type of disease uh, after a prostatectomy as opposed to 50%. Yeah. How can we lower yeah. that a little bit more? So some of the genetic biomarkers, is that helpful? Yeah, you know, uh, so so the use of biomarkers is, is, is rapidly growing. Um, it's a little tricky. I think that the use of biomarkers is still not, well proven. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it has a lot of promise. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are people doing really excellent work. I think University of Michigan in mm-hmm. particular with this music mm-hmm. initiative that they have, they have this um, trial called um, G Major, mm-hmm. which is looking at active surveillance. It, this it, It's actually completely mundane to this topic today in an intermediate risk population uh, using, using biomarkers versus not using genomic biomarkers. And That's going to be helpful. That, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, all of this has really come together into the topic we're talking about, about the intermediate risk prostate cancer for active surveillance, because I think prior to the availability of all these extra tools, it was pretty much um, not standard Mm. care to do active surveillance for intermediate risk prostate cancer. Yeah, I mean, you had a 50% chance of getting it wrong. That's not insignificant. So you hear you have, you put somebody in active surveillance, which the the active surveillance movement began before MRI-targeted biopsies. Um, This literature up to 20 years, I want to say. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I think there I think everyone is doing a much better job in really determining who's the right candidate. Um, All right. So these biomarkers that so this includes includes Oncotype DX, uh, Decipher, Prolaris. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. know if there's any others. Do you know? Those are the three main ones. Yeah. And, you know, what they are they're looking at is they're looking at um. You know, uh, this is how I describe it to patients that, you know, you're every cell in your body has has DNA. Right. It's it's um, it's the instruction Mm -hmm. book to to how that cell needs Mm -hmm. to work. Right. The cell has any given time, 100 jobs it needs to do. It goes to this instruction book to figure out, like, okay, what how do I do this job? Okay, And then with cancer, a page gets torn out. Some kind of mutation happens. Now, just like with the instruction book, you can you can tear out a page that doesn't really matter. It might be in the French section of the book, and so you're mm-hmm. not even using that part of the book, right? It could be in the it could be in the title page, or it might be like a really critical page, yeah. you know, and and you you know you're, you're struggling to know what to do with it. And so, the genomic analysis can help predict future behavior, mm-hmm. and it's not perfect, but that's kind of the idea. And so. And so you you can, you get these situations where you can have the same risk cancer, two patients with the same risk cancer. I right? say a favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, same DNA, same 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 PSA, same everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but one might be a low risk and one might be a high risk based on genomic classifiers. And what would you, you do know? in that? And, and, so and, the guy with the high risk, would you still put him on active surveillance? What would you do? I I 
I use them to counsel patients. I think that any intermediate risk prostate cancer patient that is considering active surveillance, I make sure that they understand that this is not the same thing as a low risk prostate cancer who wishes to go on active surveillance. A low risk prostate cancer, the, I, I would say things have come far enough along, except for the few and far between exceptions that the that the standard of care recommendation first line should be mm-hmm. active surveillance, not surgery, not radiation, not hormone therapy. It really, like, you should have a really good excuse to not do active surveillance. So Scott Eckner would cancer. say, that's not, let's not call it prostate cancer. So what, what's yeah, your opinion on I, that? Exactly. I don't, yeah. I don't disagree. I think, like, I think there's, I think there's nuance yeah. to that because you do need yeah. to follow it. And so while not calling it prostate cancer, we still need to capture there's so many layers to that because there's a lot of there's a lot of implications to calling a prostate cancer on patients. But if you don't call prostate cancer, you still need to make sure that the insurance coverage would still be there for their future care and follow up because it does have involve involved care and follow up. But at the end of the day, I actually think a lot of good could come from stop calling a prostate cancer because cancer is such a loaded word and it remains a loaded so- word. But intermediate risk prostate yeah, cancer. Yeah, sure. Different. So, uh, as a quick as, uh, aside, uh, um, I, I actually I'm torn with whether or not we should call it prostate cancer for no other reason that it's a great motivator for men to do the aggressive yeah. lifestyle interventions that I recommend. So here we have yeah. you know, low risk prostate cancer, and it will likely not kill you, but the C word is there, and they're going to do everything I'm asked. So now they reduce their overall risk of premature mortality from many other things, not only for prostate cancer. So from that element, from that perspective, of course, I'm not thinking policy or insurance. I'm just thinking practicality and how men function typically, which is in general, uh, you may find this interesting. Men don't really care much about health. They care about performance. But when their life is threatened or they perceive that that is the case, they're willing to do anything and everything. They, they they will flip on a dime. <laughs> right. I couldn't agree more. I think there's a couple of, of, of points worth making here. I think I agree. I think that's my experience yeah. with many patients. I think that people will, you know, they, they, they'll they ask me, I know they'll, they get a new diagnosis of prostate cancer, low, low risk prostate cancer for, for for the moment. And I'll tell them actus valens, they buy onto it. They say, what can I do to improve mm-hmm. my outcomes? I'll say, you can lose some weight. I mean, it's not a one-to-one thing, but in general, you know, it's, I mean, yeah. if they're obese. And, you know, I'll say like, look, it, it can't hurt you anyways, right? It's, it's, it's good for you. It's probably good for you from a, a, a perspective and just your overall health and, and yeah. they'll do it. They, you know, I'll say like, and there is some evidence to say that having excess body fat can actually encourage progression. And so like, you know, so there is that kind of thread that they can hold on to. Um, the, the whole, the whole thing about like naming it prostate cancer, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, it comes from the fact that like, I think part of this comes back on like us mm-hmm. physicians that like we as a community have not been great about, um, implementing active mm-hmm. surveillance. I think mm-hmm. we could be better. And I think that even today, you know, 40 to 50% of patients with lower prostate cancer in the United States are still treated mm-hmm. upfront rather than put on active surveillance. And like, I, I don't think that number is going to ever be zero, nor should it be a zero, but it probably shouldn't be 50%. Right. And my understanding is like, and, <laughs> and so, and so like, to me, it feels like not calling it cancer is a compensatory yeah. mechanism to try to avoid right. overtreatment, which maybe that's the way it has to be, but I'm not sure if that's the best way. Like I, 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 um, you know, I did like a two week kind of, um, 
exchange program mm. last year with mm -hmm. uh, London, University mm -hmm. College London, and learned a little bit about how mm -hmm. like they practice prostate cancer mm -hmm. care. And mm -hmm. over there, if you operate on a Gleason 6 prostate cancer, you have to go up in front of mm -hmm. a board and justify why that operation was uh, necessary. And it may be necessary, and if it's, it's, in, it's, it's indicated, it's fine, but you have you, you should have a good the reason. Same thing with if they do a focal treatment on that uh, tumor. No, I think focal. I yeah, focal gets a yeah. little tricky. I think, but I think, uh, but but certainly, if you do radical prostatectomy, I think that that is that is the the, yeah, the thing. Yeah, interesting. And you know, so here I'm I'm listening to you, right? And 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 you're sort of seriously discouraging people from getting a prostatectomy. That's what you think they should do. Um, and most patients would say, that come to me anyway, they'll say, look, every, all these surgeons, all they want to do is surgery. All they want, they have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I got to say, like, not the guys I know, not not surgeons I know, like a lot of people are on the same page. Sure, there's some scrupulous guys out there that <laughs> if you have a 5% Gleason 6, they're going to want to remove your prostate. Um, but but it, it's interesting how that's not the case with many uh, practitioners in, in this day and age and kind of, um, I guess, seeing looking at things outside the box or that's in the box. So that's, you, you're just going with the science. Yeah. And, and fortunately, I think mm -hmm. USPTF, US Parental mm -hmm. Task Force, you know, did the whole um, recommendation against mm -hmm. PSA mm -hmm. years ago, partly because of the harms of PSA screening yep. being over treatment. I think it really opened up the mm -hmm. eyes of urologists. I think it it started this movement to kind of clean shop and and be be more thoughtful about the the real risks and benefits of treatment and like the the harms of over treatment. I think there's still a ways to go, mm. but I, I I do think things have come a long way. And you know, you look at like trends of active surveillance over mm. the last ten years, and it's it's improved dramatically. It still has a way to go, but it it, it really has come a long way. And hopefully yeah, even in the U.S., way, I know I overseas it has a higher trend, but in the U.S. we were a little bit um, uh, not so much into active surveillance, but definitely it's more of it now. Going back going back to the intermediate risk uh, patient, so this is a patient with a Gleason grade two, which is defined some uh, more or less with a, a Gleason seven three plus four. Um, PSA of 10 or less, roughly. At what point, so let's say the Gleason 7, 3 plus 4, all 12 cores are that. Is that a candidate? Is that no. a, is that considered favorable? In other words, how many cores need to be positive with a Gleason 7, 3 plus 4 for it to yeah. be favorable or not favorable? Yeah, that's that's perfect. Yeah, so I think the the, the thing is that not all three plus fours are mm -hmm. good active defense mm -hmm. candidates, in my opinion. And this is this is we're getting a little mm -hmm. bit into opinion okay. now because um, it, I think there there's there's a yeah. range of yeah. opinions out there. Um, but I think that there there's low volume three plus four and high volume mm -hmm. three plus four, and how you figure out volume is the tricky thing. <laughs> I think this is where yeah. the field is at. I I do a couple things, and so I look at the mm -hmm. MRI. And I get a sense of how much space within the prostate is being occupied by cancer on the MRI. And I look at the biopsy core. Within the biopsy core, see the the the, the whole three plus four, four plus three. Before we continue, let's give a little love to today's sponsor. 
you know, I always say no man wakes up in the morning and says, wow, I can't wait to get that prostate biopsy today, right? <laughs> no man does. And the PSA test we know is not the greatest screening tool for prostate cancer. Well, now we have the ExoDX prostate test, which is the only risk assessment tool available as an at-home collection kit so patients can provide a specimen in the comfort and convenience of their home. The ExoDX prostate test has been included in the NCCN guidelines since 2019 for early detection of prostate cancer, and it's a simple, no digital rectal prostate exam required urine-based test for men over 40, or if there's a PSA roughly in that gray zone between 2 and 10 nanograms per milliliter to determine if you indeed need a prostate biopsy. So ask your urologist about the ExoDX prostate test. The way that comes about is that there are tumor cells that look like threes and there are tumor cells that look like fours. And, and, and if you have, and, you, and they're mixed together, and so if you have um, uh, more than 50% mm. pattern fours, then you're a four plus three. And if you have less than 50% pattern fours, you have mm -hmm. three plus four. Now you might have 45% pattern four, or you might have 5% mm -hmm. pattern four. Those are different mm -hmm. entities in my opinion. And so I actually use, and, and the pathology reports will actually say this. They will typically say the percent pattern four was That's right. 10% or mm -hmm. 30%. And so I, I use 20%. I think there's some data to say that 20% is actually a pretty reasonable cutoff. And similarly, I, I used 20%, one-fifth of the prostate, roughly volume-wise, being occupied by cancer as my, my cutoff. And so um, uh, I, I, see, I think that that, that, is, th that is the number that we've kind of come up with. And so, you know, I think that if, if you have a low-volume intermediate risk cancer, those are patients who are likely to do well. If you have a high volume one, all that's going to happen if you have high volume is that then you're just going to progress pretty soon. I mean, that's that's common things being common. Okay. That's, that's going to happen. So and definitely so, not a good not a good scenario for active surveillance in men with high volume intermediate risk. Uh, Gleason 7, 3 plus 4. Even yeah. if it's favorable. Well, exactly. So yeah. So what's so? How many? So uh, let's go over your cutoff. And I understand that. That's look. I think that when people come to my office, like you want my opinion. I I I've seen thousands of patients and have done lifestyle things for thousands. Of, my opinion matters. I so you want my opinion as much as the research. So I care for your opinion, Minaj. So in your opinion, yeah, um, um, what is the right cutoff in general? for men with uh, intermediate risk prostate cancer? At what point will you say, you know, all right, this patient is good for X-Rayland, so but this other patient is not? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think a couple of things that I look at. So the, 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 the pattern percent four, the mm -hmm. is 20%. Um, and uh, <clears throat> um, on the MRI, no sign mm -hmm. of extra caps or extension. Or any anything beyond the prostate, um, I do I do tend to get genomic classifier mm -hmm. tests on these. I use I use the decipher, um, and I like to see them being <clears throat> towards low. Sometimes it can just peak into intermediate. I'm okay with that, but not high. 
Uh, and, uh, and those are the three main things that I will go over. The MRI findings, the percent pattern four, um, and the, um, and the, uh, um, genomic, uh, d- mm-hmm. genomic testing. Yeah. PSA uh, 2025. Yeah. I think like I, here's the thing you have to contextualize PSA yeah. with the prostate right. volume. And so, and so if you have a massive prostate, which happens to have some prostate cancer in it, um, the PSA density mm-hmm. is a little better, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I, I can't say that I have like a, a, a mm-hmm. well thought out mm-hmm. cutoff that I use, but I mean, certainly if you're 20, 25, like if you're, if you're in the tens, but you have a big prostate, you know, and so your PSA density is yeah. less than 0.15 ish. Gotcha. That's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you have a small prostate and your PSA is 10, that's more concerning. PSA is 20 and above. Usually the prostate mm-hmm. can't really be that big so that it's, it's, it's probably Perfect. a concern. And, yeah, I think that's pretty little, clear. Little that. um, is there such thing? I, I, I'm I'm about to uh, ask a silly question, but understand, my, the patients that see me don't want anything. Typically, I don't want anything. Yeah. Sometimes to a fault, and then they 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 disappear. I just ask them, don't disappear. Let's keep a close eye on this. Then they disappear. Some of them, and then PSA is a thousand or something when they come back, and then this, you know spread. But is there such thing as low favorable? Gleason 7, 4 plus 3, low favorable Gleason 8. Is there such a thing remotely possible? Or once the Gleason score is at a certain point, that's it. It's it's higher grade and something needs to happen. Um, I think as far as I'm aware, the, the, the breakdown that we have with unfavorable, favorable, yeah, that's probably it. I think, I think that the, 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 um, Nuanced yeah. risk stratification within a certain tier comes from the other things. So it comes with PSA and MRI. We that's didn't right. talk much about PSMA right. yet, but PSMA so is really hitting So are you using PSMA? Let's go right in there, actually. I, I, that's what I was thinking as I asked the question. Yeah. Um, how, and a lot of it is, depends on insurance coverage, and that's still a big issue in, in the U.S., yeah. right? But I think as a phenomenal yeah. test before anything right to before any pr- procedure before any uh, treatment so that like, <laughs> we know that's a great method of stratifying let's put insurance uh, i guess we i don't even know if we should because if the insurance i mean not people are going to pay thousands of dollars though some have but um what is your approach with using a, a psma um, at this point with the information and uh, data that's available I don't use it for yeah, right. this side of the spectrum. Right. I use it for and the other side of the spectrum. And that's because of insurance issues? So I use it or... at No, I also, I don't think it's right. proven okay. in this side of the spectrum. Um, I think it's it's a spectacular test for finding cancer yeah. that has left the prostate. I, I, I have used it in recurrences sure. after radiation to localize cancer within the prostate, but like primary characterization of the primary cancer and differentiating something about that tumor based on PSMA is not well proven yet. So I think it's a pure research space. I think like it's not disproven yeah. either, but, but at the moment I, I, I um, don't have a really thoughtful way to integrate gotcha. it. So I haven't done it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the insurance thing is interesting because it turns out PSMA is in particular fascinating. You know, again, actually that, mm-hmm. that whole London thing I did, they, they use it like water. There. I was just chatting it with is, Mark Emberton. And it's because, and he's like, yeah, we use yeah. it all the time. We use it before. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it's like an X-ray. There, it's amazing. I was exactly. Like, really? Like they're getting PSMAs and everything. And you're like, uh, it's it's 
it's not a massive cost there. There's like for any number of reasons, you know, I'm not totally like I haven't read up on it or anything like that, but like for whatever reason, it's yeah. not expensive there. Um, and so, and so it is fairly ubiquitous. And so I, and I suspect like more, more because of that and because of the widespread use. And then Australia is the other place that they have really extensive use of it, actually, probably mm. even more than London, apparently, or England. And so I would suspect that we will see thoughtful analysis on this topic from those places mm. because they're already doing it. And then if there's some clinical trials going on here, that'd be great too. But, um, but until now, between the insurance coverage and just not having a reason to know how to interpret those tests. Interesting. I, don't, I, don't I get do plan tests. to have Mark on. Um, um, I just saw him and, and talk about what they do in the UK just out of curiosity and uh, maybe to look at trends as to where we might go within time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> great to talk about that topic. I mean, I'm sure you have a ton of insights. Yeah. I mean, it's, it yeah. gets into like an interesting topic that like in general, I think, I think, um, you know, you want to know when you're ordering a test, sometimes like when patients get these diagnoses, they, they, they want the test. And like, I think like information is good, yeah. but you want to know how to interpret yeah. it before you get it, yeah. not after, you know? And, and, and so, so it's, it's, you know, whether it's any number of biomarker tests that we do, um, and so like, like the genomic thing, I'll get it in the immediate risk cancers cause I'm on the fence. I don't get it on low risk mm -hmm. patients because, because I don't think I'm on the fence with those patients and I don't want things yeah. to muddy the waters and I don't want to yeah. cause angst mm -hmm. in the patient unnecessarily. And so I'll tell them, I'll be like, look, even if they bring it up, I'll say, I really recommend against it in this situation because you know, what are we looking for? And does and this what test if get the, us there? What if I think you're low risk and then this test in indicates that you're not low risk, you're higher risk. Am I, is it now it's gonna, now you're sort of forcing me yeah. to take action and, and do uh, some sort yeah. of treatment. Especially in a situation where we have so much data saying that if you are low risk and we've characterized you in the ways that historically been characterized, mm. you're gonna do well. And suddenly this test, which is unproven mm. in this space, is giving us conflicting data. Do we go with the unproven thing or do we go right. with the 20 years of data? You know, and so that's why you don't, you don't want to like, if you have a good answer, you don't want to like mess with the good answer. But if you, if you're, if you're in a gray zone, then yeah, certainly that's a good approach. Get, get more information. Let's talk about a little bit about uh, the, met the metabolism of prostate cancer, which again, you've written about and I've referenced you before, uh, referenced your paper before I ever knew you. Um, you could take it away in any direction you want, actually. Um, but let me preface by saying that in certainly my world, and my world is uh, includes integrative oncologists and people who do nutritional oncology and things like that, uh, the, the ketogenic diet has been very popular for cancer therapies, right? Um, ketogenic diet implies yeah. that um, you consume a high-fat diet. Um, not necessarily a high protein diet because protein can also be converted into glucose and certainly a gl low glucose diet is part of a ketogenic diet. So it's more of a high fat diet in the attempt to use for your body to convert fats into ketones that where your healthy cells can definitely use for energy. But cancer cells seem to have a hard time using ketones for energy. They use glucose and things of the fact. This all stems from the Warburg effect. And that's what a lot of 
a lot of my colleagues have written books on it and so forth. That's for cancer in general. We know that not all cancers are created equal. So what can you tell us about prostate cancer and the metabolism of prostate cancer as it compares to other cancers? Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating topic. So, you know, I, I, I mean, this kind of getting back to that initial conversation, I, 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 I went into medicine wanting to be an academic, you know, physician scientist, if you will, that, that was, that was like yeah. what really excited me. And so I yeah. had these parallel career trajectories where, you know, I, I'm a practicing yep. surgeon, urologist, but I also run a lab and I've been running a lab for, since I started, and I got into this area of, of cancer metabolism. Yeah. What's interesting is that, sorry to cut you off, but what's interesting is that forever, yeah. forever, uh, Minhaj, I was considered pra- a, a, as a practitioner who practiced quote unquote soft medicine, diet, feel uh-huh. touchy stuff, you know, feely touchy stuff. And when I see you guys now jumping on board, at least looking at it, researching it, you, you know, Harvard Medical School, everything like, hey, yeah. what happened to soft medicine? <laughs> yeah, you're ahead of the times. Yeah, you're you're way ahead of the times. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like you know, much respect to to you and what you do because mm, it is it such is, a yeah. hard topic. You know, I mean, medicine's <laughs> easy compared to what you're doing. It's like <laughs> the surgery right. part is straightforward, right? Exactly, like just, just, it's just true it to some but degree like, or uh, another. Yeah, and so like what you're doing is like is just kind of you know you go in circles. It is diet and and mm-hmm. health and cancer and metabolism are just mm-hmm. the most complicated is, yeah. topics you can run. And it's just like, um, and so, yeah, so I, 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 I've been studying kind of really mm-hmm. basic cancer metabolism for, for years now, trying to understand how, when you're looking at a cancer cell, we talked about genomics a second ago, you can understand a cancer cell from very, various vantage points. Each vantage point mm-hmm. gives you a different insight. Mm-hmm. You can start off with the DNA, the 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 instruction. I I, sure. I, I run things on analogy. I you know so I keep popping into analogy. Yeah, These that are works. the things I just use over and over again. And yeah. so I think of like a building. You can understand a building based on the blueprints mm-hmm. of the building. That's the DNA. You can understand it based on the like operation manual on how to like how like the 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 maintenance person runs the the building Mm -hmm. that's the protein the enzymes okay or you can understand it by observing Mm -hmm. how people use the building that's the metabolism and so how a cancer cell you know it the instructions within it how it builds these enzymes that process nutrients or how it Mm -hmm. processes nutrients to live give you different advantage points and so the the area metabolomics is 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 massively growing Mm -hmm. has a lot of promise I got into prostate cancer metabolism because right around when I was doing my fellowship, this study came out showing that metformin, right. a diabetes drug, yeah. was protective against prostate cancer. That's right. Out of left field, mm-hmm. not expected by anybody. And and that started leading to these questions on like, how is that possible? Why is that the case? And and it started getting into like, all of a sudden you started seeing that what metformin does is it does alter the metabolism. Prostate cancer is one of the unique metabolic cancers yep. in that it's not a Warburg cancer. It is primarily fat metabolism dependent rather than um, mm-hmm. sugar dependent. But these things are so interwoven that you can't just like then decide to like eat one of one thing or one thing and not of another and expect That's it right. to kind of 
work out. Um, so, but you know, we are doing a lot of research. What I'm doing a lot of research on right now is, you know, we, we I mean, I have some great collaborators here. Um, you, you know, Christy Adamo, mm-hmm. who I, I know you know as well. Uh, and and I, so like within our radiology facilities here, we have these like really fancy MRIs that can image mm-hmm. metabolism in real time. So we're actually trying to use that mm-hmm. information to characterize cancer cells. And then, and then when you treat the cells, um, you can actually see the cells that are being affected by treatments in real time. This is in mice. We're not at humans yet, but like in, like in mice, you know, we're, you know, when you treat cancer for more advanced cancers, typically, but it can apply almost anywhere. You have to wait, you give a treatment, you start a drug, you wait three months, you see if the cancer shrunk. That's that's the current state of the Hello. field. But I the hope is froze. that actually you can actually actually start to um, uh, see the metabolism change within a day or two, and get quicker feedback. So that's that's some of the stuff that we're working on. So you know the analogy I use is that like if if you're looking, you, you know that mm-hmm. that if you have a house, right, or a building, you can understand understanding cancer from different vantage points, whether it's metabolomics, genomics. Right proteomics right. these are the different labels we use from any omic you know if with, yeah. You yeah. Know, omics multi-omics yeah. multi-omics is a thing that uh, it's you combine one or two of them of the other omics and you get multi-omics and so you know if you look at the blueprint that's the dna if you look at if you look at the machines that are set up that's the enzymes if you look at the way that the papers flow and the people walk through the building excellent that's the mm-hmm. metabolism okay and so, and so, um, so the the work that we're working on is a lot of it is actually um, the the future is treatment, but currently it's just just kind of mm-hmm. understanding the cancer better and understanding how it's working. And so, a lot of like risk stratification, differentiating the more aggressive ones from less aggressive cancers. We have great collaborators here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know mm-hmm. you know Christy Adamo, and uh, also um, uh, he d- does like integrative health, and then like we have like. Like I have this access to this like specialty imaging here that does um, oh. it's called hyperpolarized imaging. It lets you image mm-hmm. metabolism oh, wow. in real time using MRI, and so you can see the areas of the prostate that have um, mm-hmm. increased metabolism and what type of metabolism it is. And so that's really exciting because. You know, right now, when you start someone on cancer treatment, this is typically for more advanced cancers, actually, but but can apply everywhere. You know, you have to wait like three months. That's right. To see if the cancer mm-hmm. shrinks. Mm-hmm. But with, if you can see the metabolism, you can do it before and after within wow. a day or two of trying the drug. And you can see if the metabolism is taking, if like the cancer cell is not doing well, essentially. And it may take a while for it to shrink, but you can tell that it's not doing well right away. And so that's that's some of the exciting that's stuff that's kind of out there. We've... we've you know, played around with some of the stuff you do with like, inter- you know, trying to use diet to intervene. It is hard. Cancer. It's it very is hard. hard. And like diet and exercise, hard. for example. So what study was yeah. it? They said, well, diet inc- decreased the risk of advanced prostate cancer by 25%. I'm butchering the numbers here a little bit. But when they did aggressive or moderate to high intensity exercise, it increased it by or decreased the risk by 40%. I'm butchering the numbers. But the point I want to make is exercise with diet was more effective than diet alone. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And this is, you know, I mean, the thing is that, like, it's a super hard area to research, but it's so important. I think sometimes, like, just because it's so hard to research and because so many studies have failed, 
like the research community has a hard time putting their kind of brains around it. But so I had, you know, uh, tying Mm. together how we first met, Mm. the way I met Howard Walensky was through this thing that has become uh, an initiative called the Prostate Cancer Active Surveillance Research Initiative. And it's it's this project that started almost three years ago now where we brought together Mm -hmm. patients and physicians to, to, to do joint collaborative decision-making on prioritizing mm-hmm. prostate cancer research. And, and actually, we held like a two-day conference together, which was attended by like about 100 patients and 50 clinicians. Howard was one of the people that was involved with all this. And, um, and we came up with the top eight through this joint iterative process. We came up with the top eight priorities for, for future active science research. And sprinkled within that, the reason I'm bringing that up now is that sprinkled within that, diet and exercise were Beautiful. like right in there, you know. And, and, and the number one priority that came up through this joint kind of process was actually how to use MRI intelligently for augmenting active surveillance. Uh, and so, um, you know, all the stuff we're talking about is like they want to know about they could be more proactive. And, and you know, I had Phil, um, Dr. Phil P- Pirizarno, another I'm butching his name a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Parazio. Parazio. Um, yeah. Who, uh, yeah, I had him yeah. on, um, as well. By the way, there again, I was at Columbia doing the research, uh, with Aaron Katz early 2000s. Parazio was a medical student. And there again, um, it was a scenario we were talking about it. I'll let you know when that, when it's published, cause I think you'll find it interesting. Here I am doing this research on, again, it was considered soft medicine. And I'm like, I'm, I'm in the closet literally like, I don't even want to let people, this is my passion. This is what I care about. But man, no one else cares about it. If you're not a surgeon, then who are you? That's kind of how it felt like. Yeah, even back then, there yeah. was no hyphu or, you know, focal ablation. It's either surgery or radiation, period, end of story. And that's hardcore medicine that takes care of the cancer. Anyway, I'm in this little corner doing this research on these nutrients and things like that. Parazio was um, a medical student. And we were talking about that because now he has this like Zen uh, uh operating zen podcast i was like what <laughs> what yeah, yeah so we were talking about <laughs> you know that i was like i can't you know i i am still in awe when i go to the aua people pull me to the side all the time says okay what's a protocol what's a nutritional protocol all the time so it's really is mind-boggling it's it's um it's it's fascinating and i talk about it all the time with anyone like my wife knows about it she's like remember those days that i was like i'm, I'm pulling my hair not that i had much back then either um um and here we are all these years later this level of interest is unbelievable um keto so ketogenic diet so we know that um prostate cancer is more of a uh, lipophilic type of cancer or likes more lipids or fats for its growth but there's a difference between low risk intermediate risk Mm -hmm. high risk prostate cancer and then once there's metastasis where do we know that is lipophilic versus gluco uh, uh, or a glyco like glycolytic? At uh, what stage? Once they have yeah. bone mets or soft tissue mets? Yeah, I think I think metastatic lethal prostate cancer. You start to see secondary changes that it mm-hmm. starts to become a Warburg cancer, uh, and and at that point, like you know these these types of things like like the. So F, mm-hmm. there's a type of PET scan. You know, we're using mm-hmm. in prostate cancer. We use that PSMA mm-hmm. PET. PSMA is a like a membrane mm-hmm. membrane marker that that 
that can be detected. The the PET scan that you hear about mm-hmm. with other cancers is called FTG PET. FTG is a is a mm-hmm. type of looks like sugar, and and so most cancers light up on FTG PET, but prostate cancer early stage does not. Late stage, it's variable, but it, even it, in late stage, is variable. Uh, so that okay, so that there yeah. would indicate that um, it's it, there's it's not it's not um, a Warburg type of cancer. Yeah, it's not a traditional Warburg exactly. I think it, it, it the the more consistent changes are the mm-hmm. the fat metabolism changes. So I don't know in in mm-hmm. prostate cancer. I'm sorry, but it's tricky. Be- yeah, go ahead. I don't know what that means dietarily necessarily. Here's why: there's yeah. a lot of different types of fats, right? And when then each category is saturated, yeah. unsaturated is like three other categories: polyunsaturated, you know, omega three, omega six, omega nine, six like that, right? You need fat, like you yeah. need protein, like you need carbs to sustain yourself. So, are we just choosing? Is this a trade-off? Like, I'll be less healthy, perhaps, but you know, not feed the cancer, or you know, some of these cells make their own fats to feed, you know, to feed themselves. Um, so, some of it is um, created by the cells themselves, not necessarily dietarily. So, I've put people on ketogenic diet with prostate cancer initially more from a met- metabolic perspective because they have metabolic syndrome. And I find that, right? So from that perspective, I put yeah. people on keto. But if they're not, you know, obese or have metabolic syndrome, I don't put them. I put them on a sort of a plant-based diet and that modified with fish and things like that. So what yeah. have you found? I know in our past talk, you said, look, I tried the ketogenic diet. That thing is hard. So that's the other element. It could be the best diet yeah. in the world, but if the person is not following it, it is not going to work. Yeah, I, I I think I agree with all of the above. So here, here's, here's my thoughts is that, you know, I mean, diet, these things are so hard. The, the effects mm-hmm. of changing diet are so hard to predict, as you know, I mean, who would have thought that eating more fat will help you lose fat? Right? With the exception so, of like, Atkins, it, maybe. If that's where we're starting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, um, I think that there are, uh, like, body fat, body fat content in the body um, does support prostate cancer. That seems to mm-hmm. be a little more solid. And if you can cut down on body fat for people who are have excess body fat, you are probably like the fat makes hormones that support prostate cancer. And that's the primary driver of mm-hmm. prostate cancer growth is this hormonal pathway. And so if you can cut down on excess body fat, whatever works for you, you're probably doing yourself a service in any number of ways, but also from a cancer perspective. And so from that perspective, keto yeah. can be very effective for some people. And I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, inflammation pathways are very important for prostate cancer. And similarly, I, I think my understanding is that like keto can be beneficial, right. especially if you do like the right type of keto for inflammation globally. So the types of things yeah. you can do antioxidant based and like nutrition based that improve your, and exercise, I mean, the exercise actually helps a lot on that side too, I think. And so um, if you can improve your body's general state of being in terms of inflammation yeah. state, that is also very helpful for prostate cancer. And so I think I think that like what you eat directly going into cancer is right. not super easy to control. How you are as a person globally in terms of health and how that affects the cancer is yeah. probably 
more effective. And so I think if you use your nutrition to focus on your body's health rather than the cancer, and then use your body to fight the cancer, you're better off with that two-stage thought process yeah. than than trying to think like how, you know, is this cheeseburger you know, that's good a great for point. my cancer or bad for my cancer? I always think of it, you want to treat, so people ask me all the time, how do you treat prostate cancer with natural and lifestyle interventions? My response is, I don't know that I'm treating cancer with lifestyle interventions. What I am treating is your microenvironment. I want to make your microenvironment yeah. hostile to cancer cells because what the damage occurs when it starts moving around. If it stays put, depending on where it is, but if it stays put, you're fine. If it starts moving around, that's a problem. So I'm treating a microenvironment, which I think is really important. So within that comes all these, what I call microenvironment biomarkers. So I do look at C-reactive protein and hemoglobin A1C and all these things that most urologists don't look at because that's part of the microenvironment. Yeah. I think it's great. I think that's that's exactly the right way to kind of frame it. And I think that that, that probably is, I think, I think as a field, that is probably the direction that we need to kind of hone in on. I think, I think that a lot of the work that has been done to try to look at how, how these missing interventions the affect cancer have, you know, have uh, yeah, they've the all boat. been null results. Like missing not, the boat. You know, in, not, and, and, yeah. and this doesn't mean that, that yeah. a patient doesn't need treatment, right? So they could have a prostatectomy. What's the recurrence rate after prostatectomy or radiation? I don't know, 40% within 10 years or so. So let's treat the microenvironment. Um, yeah. They're even more so in that scenario, right? Yeah. I think that will reduce uh, the the recurrence rate. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because everyone's different, you know. And like, what the 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 thing is, it's not like a drug mm-hmm. targeted to a specific pathway where you it's can kind of use it in all the same philosophy people, right? Like of how you're looking at it. <laughs> yeah, like an obese person versus like yeah. a really malnourished thin person. Correct. And obviously, so there's this thing called thin fat, where people are thin, but very high body fat. So those people concern me, too. This is why you can't just look at BMI. I think BMI is not a great thing. Clearly, obese is obese. But in in a certain group of people where they're not obese, they're overweight, or they might be overweight, or they might not be overweight. um, They may have low body fat and, you know, look big or have uh, high body fat and look slim or thin fat or slim fat. So those are all areas yeah. that are fascinating. Yeah, that's and and exactly. And I think once you start thinking about that, and then it's just a lot easier to grasp. And I, I bet you that the, that that this is the type of stuff that's going to really pan out. I mean, that's and that's it's great that you kind of have it framed. Yeah, because I think all right. It's, it's I mean, really right. The here last question: twenty fourteen, twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. You are the primary primary author. I know it's coming of this paper, <laughs> suggesting. Yeah. Correlation, not causation, that vasectomies uh, uh, increase the possibility of advanced prostate cancer. This is a journal of clinical oncology, I want to say. Yep. You, don't ha- you have no idea what you've cost with that paper and how many, how many times <laughs> I have to answer questions with regards yeah. to vasectomies and prostate cancer. I mean, yeah. I, you, that's probably the most famous. Uh, uh, you become famous from that paper more than any others, I would assume, because it keeps coming up. Oh, my gosh. I, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, that was a crazy paper. So this, this is how this paper started. You know, the, some 20 years prior to that, 
Um, so this is when I was actually still a resident in mm -hmm. at, at MGH and in the Harvard system, and uh, and I was I was um, I just you know I was kind of exploring different research areas, and I collaborated um, with mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Lorelei um, Mucci uh, and Ed, uh, Ed Giovannici, uh and um, at the Harvard School of Public Health, and they they oversee this. I mean, they're part of um, uh, this big group that oversees mm -hmm. the health professional follow-up study, which is this 50,000 patient or person cohort of people who've been followed for years. Yeah, and for lots sure. of amazing stuff has come from that study. And they, they mm -hmm. published in like the early 90s, I believe now, that they, they found in this cohort, and it has just lots of details, that, that study. And they, they published in the 90s that, you know, they had information on vasectomy and they had information on prostate cancer. And they were observing that mm -hmm. people who had vasectomy had more prostate cancer. Now, that initial study was criticized mm -hmm. very strongly um, because, and, and, and many criticisms were correct because there's not confounders. People who get vasectomies are different than people who don't get vasectomies. They might have more involvement with urology, more access to urologists just as a screening step. And so you, you, you have biases that built in that can account for why all prostate cancer is detected in one population more than another. And so, but, you know, but it is an open-ended question. It's an interesting question. Um, and so we figured, why don't we sure. study lethal prostate cancer? Because, you know, asymptomatic clinically insignificant prostate yeah. cancer. If you don't look for it, yeah, you won't exactly. find it and you never would have known you had it. Lethal mm -hmm. prostate cancer, it's hard to like miss it. Like if, if it's killing you, no matter where you live, no matter what yep. kind of access to healthcare you have, you're probably going to find it. The assumption, the hypothesis was that lethal prostate cancer would not show a association. So we do this study and lo and behold, we're observing in this cohort that there is an association. And so, you know, I'm a urologist in training at this time. And what's going through my mind is, <laughs> if I publish this, <laughs> my field will disown me right at the beginning of my own career. Uh, and so it was like this very tricky thing, but I had a lot of good mentorship. And, and it, I, I learned a lot. I learned that, you know, when you do research, you try to do as good a job as you can mm -hmm. and you publish what you find. And so, it's, you know, ultimately, that's what we did. Now, I think it's extremely important. So the the risk noted was small, you know, ten percent increase in risk. This is called a relative mm -hmm. risk. We start getting to like wonky statistics here a little bit. What's really important to know is the absolute risk. That is the risk that when a patient who is deciding to do, you know, the question that a person wants to know when they're making a decision on something is. If I do this, how much more risk am I at? That's an absolute risk. That's actually not a relative risk. So, you know, they want to know the answer to, okay, if I get a vasectomy, what are my chances, increased chances of dying of prostate cancer if this data turns out to be true? Okay. And that number is 1.2%. Okay. And I think when you, when you give that context, 
it, it it should not be the driving reason one chooses to or does not choose to get vasectomy. On top of that, other studies that have been also really well done with large cohorts that are followed over a long period of time have failed to show this was association. Was it a, 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 good, you know, a good of a study as like yours? You, was it, did they look at all the key factors? Yeah. I would say, yeah, I would say some of them are. I'd say that there's like a handful of them, like two or three studies out there that are just as good that fail to show an association. So the data are conflicting. It's, 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 it's an almost impossible question to study the mechanism of because the difference in time between the event of vasectomy and the mm -hmm. event of prostate cancer is 20 years. And, and so it's, it's really hard to mm -hmm. like understand, you know, yeah. a lot happens in 20 years, no matter who you are. And, and, and it's very hard to kind of link those two together. So mm -hmm. in my mind, this is an open-ended question. Um, I think that it really, it, it may, it may be interesting from a scientific perspective mm. on better understanding what causes prostate cancer. I don't think it should drive policy. I, I, I don't mechanism? even think it should really Why would driving it be? much in terms of decision. I, I, that I cannot figure out. That's, yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, and that, that's the thing. I mean, that's where I get stuck too. Like then we, 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 there, there's been some like really rudimentary studies there there are certain signaling proteins coming from the testes mm -hmm. that don't make it up to the prostate anymore once you do a vasectomy whether that kind of signaling protein not making it you know like they're contained in the fluid that is coming from the testes itself because you're cutting off the tubing that tr transports the, the the fluid from the testes or plus the testes are a source of 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 all kinds of hormones. I mean, testosterone being the main one. And when you do a vasectomy, is there a change in that? But I mean, most studies have not shown much of a change. So it is unclear what the mechanism of there is definitely not a clear, straightforward mechanism. And so when you that that's why when I put it together, I mean, I, I counsel patients. So so this is what I do when they come to me, whether or not they should do a vasectomy. I discourage them if they have, not if their father or uncle or brother had prostate cancer, but if they died from it or if they were diagnosed at a very young age with moderate, intermediate to high risk disease. This is all my clinical opinion. Or if they have a BRCA2, BRCA1 mutation, which I would test for germline mutations. Um, more or less, that that's pretty much it. I would discourage it. And I would say, look, I really don't know. So, but you're at higher risk. The study showed what it showed. Maybe I want to decrease the likelihood of you being part of that one point something percent. So maybe that's not a good idea for you. Yeah. And that, that's, that's really the key. I think that for someone who is terrified of this, who's lived this experience where their parent died at a young age or their brother or their grandparent or something, and, and this is a driving thing that, you know, uh, you know, and you tell them that this, if, if, if everything really kind of plays out, it may increase your risk by about 1% and they mm -hmm. hear that number and they mm -hmm. say vasectomy is not worth it. Well, then there you go. I, I think that that is an informed decision making. And similarly, you know, you hear someone who's like, well, there's a lot of benefits that vasectomy can have on my life right now. Yeah, right. right like, exactly. like, I just don't want another kid. <laughs> like, or, you know, right. And like, that's a big deal to them. And they hear this and they're worried about prostate cancer, but you tell them that, look, it looks like it's about a 1% increased absolute risk of having prostate cancer. Then, um, then, then that, that, then, then they should get it, you know, and, and they, they understand the risk. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's awesome. 
Dr. Minhaj Siddiqui, thank you so much, sir, University of Maryland. How can people be in touch with you if they want to connect? The easiest way is, is um, you know, they, they can look me up on the, um, uh, you know, if you look up Minhaj Siddiqui, M-I-N-H-A-J Siddiqui, S-I-D-D-I-Q-U-I, uh, University of Maryland, you'll, you'll find lots of contact information. My office number for, like, clinical inquiries is 410-328-6422. We'll have it on our show notes as well. Thanks so much, brother. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and your expertise in this area. I look forward to our collaborations with you and your group. And keep me posted with anything you do and anything, I could, any information that I can spread to my audience, because I think you're doing like like many patients would say to to us, you're doing God's work. So thank you for doing it. I, I'd say the same of you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, brother. Be well. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on YouTube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. and It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have... 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. 
The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.